This is How to Read. I'm Milan. And I'm Olivia, the producer of this episode. Today we're talking with Dora Zhang, a scholar of American, British, and European fiction. This episode is about atmospheres in literature and life. Atmospheres are both insubstantial and yet very palpable. For example, think about tension that feels so thick you could cut it with a knife. Whether you're decorating a room or throwing a party, creating the right atmosphere can mean the difference between success and failure. But Dora Zhang argues that no one person is ever in full control of an atmosphere. It's always something collective, not just a projection of one person's mood. When it comes to literature too, atmospheres emerge collectively from the readers, the characters, and the language of the text. Dora Zhang, welcome. Thank you. So you have been doing research on atmospheres. I have. <laughs> and um, that seems so intriguing to me because I feel like atmospheres seem like something that are so in, that's so insubstantial. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, what is an atmosphere? Yeah. That's my first basic, basic question. Right, absolutely. They're such an elusive phenomenon. They're immaterial, they're intangible, but I think that they're also very palpable. You know, if you walk into a room where a confrontation is happening yeah. or, you know, you, you can feel about, tension. Like you, can, you, you can cut the, cut tension, the tension with a knife. Exactly. Right? That exactly. sense of it being palpable. Exactly. Yeah. So the elusiveness of atmospheres is one of the things that makes them so interesting, in fact and their location. So we tend to think that, you know, a room has an atmosphere, right? But is it in the room? Is it in any particular objects in the room? So the ambiguity of location is one of the things that makes it difficult to think about. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so interesting because sometimes, I mean, I feel like in interior design, people often talk about sort of, you know, you put like some flowers and that will change the atmosphere. Like, trying to locate atmosphere in one specific object and that that will change then the whole room. Yes, um, exactly. But it sounds like what you're saying is it's not always that easy to actually like localize atmosphere in one specific thing. Exactly. You can't localize it in any yeah. specific thing. So you're forced to think about the whole, you know, mm. it's not any particular object, but it arises from the particular configurations of all the objects in a space, including the people that might be there. So it requires thinking in terms of relationality, requires thinking. Is that like relations between all the different objects? Yes, And exactly. the people and... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The relation between everything that's present at any given moment. I think also an atmosphere, you know, there's clearly something subjective about it in that, you know, you, you feel it, you sense it, but... It's perceivable by many people and there can be pretty broad consensus. You know, if you go into a party that's feeling very joyful, many people will feel that and you yourself may not feel joyful upon entering the party, but that You'd be atmosphere... able to say like, this is a joyful atmosphere. Right. So it's not just a subjective projection of your mm-hmm. own mood. Um, should we check on this tea? Sure. Yeah. I think I can just see, I think turmeric probably is going to be quite a bright color, but let's... Oh, no. It's a little pale. I'm going to have a little taste and see. Maybe we need to just leave it for longer. Okay, no problem. That's very weak. I think we should wait a little longer. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So is there a way then in which 
no single person is ever fully in control of an atmosphere. Like, yeah. It's never fully in one person's control. Yes, I would say it's never it's never anyone's fully in control. anyone's control, <laughs> and that's that's one of the things. It's always kind of unpredictable. It's mm. always contingent, and I think the people who might know this best are performers. I um, heard an interview with John Stewart a while ago, when he was talking about comedy, and he said that you know when you do stand up comedy, you have to create the atmospheric conditions for that comedy, and it can be thrown off by something like a glass breaking or someone talking. And so I, I thought that was a great example of yeah. the, the very fragile sort of ecosystem that an atmosphere is, where you can try as hard as you can to set up all the right conditions, but some minor detail can just totally throw it off. Yeah, and also, I mean, I, it makes me think of like hecklers and how comedians deal with heckling. Right, you know? like, yeah. It can also be a gift, a comedian who can have like a really like sharp retort and totally. like, you know, really shuts down someone who's wanting to kind of insult them. Like, yes. That can actually then like be a positive thing for the atmosphere. Yes, yes. And the mood can turn so quickly, right? Mm. I mean, I think it's a demonstration of the changeability of atmospheres as well. They're feedback loops. They're changing and responding to what's going on at every moment. Mm. So... Should we move on to some f sort of fictional examples? Sure, Because yeah. I know that you are, well, you're in a Department of English. I am, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, like we've been talking very much about these like real life atmospheres. Right, yeah. The sort of like face-to-face -face presence of mm -hmm. different people and how that affects how, you know, people affect each other in, in the same space. Mm -hmm. Whereas, yeah, like literature or reading, you know, how, how do atmospheres operate there? You can think about literary atmosphere in several ways. You can think about the representations of particular atmospheres in a work itself. Yeah, um, like the kind of the physical spaces that characters might be in, like describing yeah, that. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah, or the atmosphere of a party or a conversation or something in the work itself. But there's also the atmosphere that's produced by the work, which might be different from the atmosphere that it's representing, right? So kind of like the example you gave earlier of a person coming to a party and the party is joyful and right. you might not be feeling joyful, but you can sort of perceive that the mood, the, the, the atmosphere there is joyful. Yes. And yet it might produce a different effect on you. Yeah. Yeah. So the party that comes to mind for me is Mrs. Dalloway's party in Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. Yeah. So, so in this novel, Mrs. Dalloway, um, can you just kind of s explain like what the place of this party is within the rest of the novel? Sure. So the party is the culminating event. Mrs. Dalloway is sort of a glittering society hostess. She's a wife of a member of parliament, and she gives this party that the prime minister attends and all these important people. And she thinks of giving parties as actually her skill in a way, bringing people together. This is something that she can do. But we learn throughout the course of the novel that she feels some ambivalence about her life. And throughout the course of the novel, she encounters some people from her past. And that makes her think about how things might have turned out differently. And so other things she could have done besides hosting parties or something. Yeah. And she encounters figures from her past who she feels and rightly feels or judge her for, for this person that she's become. And so all of these threads are present at the end so even though it's of a success right i mean the like, prime minister coming seems like a pretty big success right exactly yeah yeah but she has these kind of mixed feelings yes yes and then also she learns of the suicide of 
the shell-shocked soldier, Septimus Smith, who is the other important character in this novel who's sort of her double in a lot of ways. That's a bit of a downer. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, yes. There's something, I think, very ambivalent in its representation of the party itself, right? So it is a success in many ways, but the representation of that party, the description of the party is, I think, not kind of exuberant and celebratory, but much more ambivalent. So, so it's sort of like a success that she's sort of thrown a, a good party? Yeah. But that we as readers are given a different atmosphere? Yeah. That That is interesting because it leads me to wonder um, what the role of language is. Like if we're talking mm-hmm. about literature, if we're talking about novels, yes. like what role does, does language play in creating certain atmospheres and maybe in a particular, the kind of mismatches of atmosphere? Yeah, yeah. I think formal features are really crucial in the atmospheres that they produce. And certain formal features, I think, can What work. do you mean by formal features? Um, features like the rhythm of language, um, certain figural uses of language, like metaphors and similes, the images that are Okay, printed. so everything that's sort of going beyond the sort of like literal meaning of the words yes, on the page. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think one formal feature that you find in atmospheric descriptions especially is just a simple list but often a very long profuse excessive Mm. list so not like sentences but just like a list of like objects that yeah a list yeah a list of what might be there in the place that you're describing for instance so I'm thinking of Zola's The Belly of Paris. This was the example that I, I had in mind. That's great. Can, can you read us a notable list from yes. that? Yes. So, um, so this passage, which is known as the Symphony of Cheeses. Ooh. Um, because they're, they're, that sounds delicious. A, yes. Well, um, not so strange. delicious as you'll, as you'll see. But so I'll just read a section of this. The cheeses stood in piles on the table. There, next to the one-pound packs of butter, a gigantic contal was spread on leaves of white beet, as though split by blows from an axe. Then came a golden Cheshire cheese, a gruyere like a wheel fallen from some barbarian chariot, some Dutch cheeses suggesting decapitated heads smeared in dried blood in his hardest skulls, which had earned them the name of Death's Heads. A parmesan added its aromatic tang to the thick, dull smell of the others. Three breeze on round boards looked like melancholy moons. Two of them, very dry, were at the full. The third, in its second quarter, was melting away in a white cream, which had spread into a pool and flowed over the thin boards that had been put there in an attempt to hold it in check. And so it goes on for, wow. for a while. <laughs> I, just I, was, sort of, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I was making some faces. Yes, <laughs> like yes. Strange, yes. Um, kind of disgusting at yes. times. The, the thing about the cheese that's like a barbarian's, what was it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like a wheel that had fallen from a, some barbarian, barbarian chariot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's fascinating. But yeah, what what do you make of that? And maybe particularly, like, how does that, What atmosphere do you see that generating? Right. So I think that one of the things about a passage like this is it's hard to say, you know, it generates 
this or that particular atmosphere. And I think, you know, one of the things about atmosphere is that it's hard to pin it down with a single adjective or even with a set of adjectives. But obviously a description like that is very interested in a kind of atmospheric intensity. You know, what it's conveying is this sort of profusion of of sensory impressions. Um, there's something kind of grotesque about it. And it takes place when these two characters are gossiping with each other and it's an example of also of the, the kind of corrupt rot that Zola is depicting as well. I'm going to see if this tea is okay. now looking any, okay. any better while you... Oh, I think this... It's kind of yellowish, so okay. we'll assume there's some turmeric in there. Sounds okay. good. Thank you. So when when I first like learned that you were working on this topic, um, I kept being reminded of my dad. He's someone who is, I think, very sensitive to atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And so my dad is Dutch, and in Dutch the word is just sphere. Mm. Um, but he will, you know, when it, whenever he'll talk about like an experience that he had, an event that he went to, a place that he visited, right. like without fail, he'll talk about the sphere. Oh, interesting. And and I'm kind of curious, like. Do you think some people are more sensitive to atmosphere than others? Or like, what is it like to go through the world being very aware of atmosphere versus maybe some people who really aren't sensitive to it? Yeah, absolutely. I think some people are more sensitive to it than others. And actually, there's there's often a gendered dimension to this. I first started thinking about it by noticing the prominence of figures of air in Henry James. It's his female characters in particular that are very attuned to what is in the air. and So these, his female characters have to be like hypersensitive. Yes, to yes, that you kind mm. of convert what is in the air to these pulses of revelation, something like that. So because what is in the air and because atmospheres are often so tenuous and so... Um, you know, they don't quite rise to the level of a fact or it's easy to dismiss them. So I think they've been aligned with women's intuition or this sense of something not quite rational, but, you know, something yeah. that you kind of just intuit in some slightly mystical way. It yeah, seems... you can't point to a fact and be like, this proves that right. there's an atmosphere that is X here. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, I have one more question for sure. you. Um you talked about parties earlier. Yeah. Um, what's the worst atmospheres at parties you've hosted? Oh. The worst atmosphere at a party um, is, I mean, just when, when like, things aren't getting off the ground, like, conversations are kind of halting and nobody seems to be having yeah. a good time. <laughs> I mean... And it's hard to know what to do then, right? Like, yeah. Because you can't sort of... Well, this I guess what we've been saying about atmospheres all along, like nobody's really in control of them. And so right. even if you try and come in and be very like chatty, yes. if other people are still very like awkward and halting, yes. the atmosphere is not going to suddenly become right, exactly. what you want. Exactly. Yeah. It's an emergent phenomenon in a lot of ways. It's like like ants, you know, <laughs> like there's no individual centralized authority that's kind of commanding any individual ant to do something. But then, you know, somehow out of the chaos arises this order. And there's something like that about atmospheres. You know, there's no controlling authority that can determine what kind of atmospheres get created. But 
through this spontaneous interaction, you know, something is generated. Yeah, I love that. I feel like next time I'm at a, I'm at a party, I'm going to kind of <laughs> visualize everyone as being little ants. Yeah. And I think there's something sort of humbling about that. Because yeah. then you don't feel like, oh, I'm like solely responsible for anything right. that happens here. Absolutely. I can just interact. Yes, yeah. maybe that lessens one's responsibilities as a host. Mm-hmm. All right, Dora Zhang, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip in which Dora discusses the movie Gaslight and how marginalized groups get unfairly dismissed as hypersensitive. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at howtoreadnow. This episode was produced by me, Milan Talunen. And by me, Olivia Branscombe, with editorial assistance from Sam Wilcox and Colby King. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.